It's Friday, October 3rd, and you're listening to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review to let us know what you thought of the show there. You can also send us feedback on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic, and I'm joined, as always, by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood, still in my neck of the woods over at New York for the New York Film Festival. I'm surprised you've lasted this long, man. This city eats people alive. I grew up here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love being in New York. It's, it's, my, it's my hometown. The pride never leaves your system. I'm still a Yankee fan, God forbid. I cried when Derek Jeter left, you know? That, that's me. Meanwhile, we're still watching movies. The last time we spoke we hadn't yet seen sort of the big uh new york film festival title of the year just because it hadn't shown yet but uh that would be gone girl which was the opening night film and now we've seen it and not only that it's about to open so we have a lot of reasons to dig into this movie which both of us i think liked although it's it's a movie that hasn't been universally acclaimed uh it's a you know david fincher is a, is a really sophisticated filmmaker the material divides people but i found it to be a really fascinating experience because it's a very contemporary film the way that it deals with certain issues and uh, you felt similarly, right? Yeah, I, 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 well, I think what's interesting about Gone Girl is that is that when you open a movie like that in a sophisticated venue like the New York Film Festival, it's it's being judged um, as if it were you know a smart person's movie, and and in fact, it is a commercial movie and a mainstream movie and a smart person's movie. I believe that its main constituents will be smart moviegoers. Uh, I'm a little nervous, in fact, about how it's going to play. Um, Broadly, because it, it actually, given who Fincher is and the kind of sophisticated uh, way that he's talking about, you know, he's making fun of trash TV. He's satirizing people in in Missouri, you know, who are who are you know uh, in flyover land. You know, how are the people in flyover land going to actually appreciate that material? It's it, but it is very accessible. It's about marriage. It's about a lot of uh, the. The kinds of presentation and that people put on during courtship it's 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 about things that everybody can can relate to and it's very well executed very well acted Ben Affleck is perfectly cast having survived Geely he knows what it's like to be in a maelstrom like that and um and it has brought uh, a lot of of likability to that character of Nick in fact the movie tips in that direction in a way that the book uh, does not. But the brilliant structure of the book is also in the movie and works very well cinematically so that it's like a Hitchcockian movie that you're you're sort of finding yourself drawn to these people who are behaving really badly. Well, you know, that's sort of Fincher's main motif is, yes, people love comparing him to Hitchcock because there's a deviousness and also a craftsmanship that sort of work in harmony. Um, and this, I would not say it's on the level of, let's say, a Zodiac, which does goes to great lengths to sort of explore. Too many lengths, I would argue. Well, we could argue that for an entire special edition next time there's a Zodiac anniversary coming up, because I think that movie's a masterpiece. But in reference to this one, I think what's interesting about Gone Girl is it's it's a movie that takes some of the more edgier elements of Fincher's style and consolidates them into a a poppier context than we often see him working with, at least these days. You know, if you compare it to something like Social Network, I mean, that, that movie, I think, is 
little more high-minded than this one, which seems to at once sort of like tackle contemporary media culture and also sort of like celebrate it in a weird way. So I couldn't always tell if I was watching How something. How is he celebrating Well, it? I wouldn't say, it's hard to attribute it to Fincher himself, but I do think that the story offers a certain kind of soapy melodramatic appeal. And I'm not, I feel, I felt like there was a tension between sort of the text, which is kind of a trashy melodramatic story to some degree and the way that it's kind of assembled. So it's, I, I, I'm not sure if it always succeeds to be as smart as the kind of conversations it provokes. Uh, but there is a sort of like guilty thrill to some of the moments later in the movie when the payoff comes around and, you know, that's venturing into spoiler territory. But I really enjoyed the movie. I think that there are parts of it that are uneven, but it's so well made that I almost don't care to the point where when I wrote about it, to me, it was like an access point to all kinds of different things that have come out already this year, including movies uh, on all kinds of different scales from uh, Birdman, which is actually closing the New York Film Festival and opening in about a month. They, they have similar kind of looks at celebrity and media culture. Right. But then also the one I love, which is a, another movie with a kind of surprise twist about a couple whose relationship is sort of evolving before your eyes. And, um, you know, it's a much smaller movie, but both of them, I think, take these very progressive stances about what it actually means to be in a monogamous relationship and sort of testing those boundaries and so forth. So it's it's a movie that that's worth seeing just for the kinds of conversations it provokes. Um, I know you you wrote a piece uh, when it when premiered at New York saying that, you know, as, as enjoyable as it is, there are reasons to be concerned about how it's going to be processed. And I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that you know, the question of misogyny is, yes. is, is front and center, and that's why I, I mentioned that it tips in, the fa- in favor of the man. Now, you could credit Ben Affleck for that, or you could credit the fact that Fincher obviously has some sympathies here, because the woman, as created by Gillian Flynn in her book, um, Amy, has, is, is, a, is a... You can actually admire her on some level. I mean, you can understand why she does the things that she does. And in the movie, she isn't as real. She's, there's something arch and, and fatal attraction-like about this sort of um, angry, angry woman. And, I mean, and I, I'm a... trying to... Uh, the reason I'm hesitating is because I, I don't want to be spo- spoilery. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a question of what word at this point could even spoil it. You know, you just don't know how you might stumble into that turf. In fact, on our Critic Wire blog, the survey, uh, the results of which will run on Monday, involves uh, spoilers and, and, you know, when critics should feel comfortable, do you know, sort of venturing into yeah, that the territory. The book is out there. This is a bestseller. Right. I think next week... Book, but a lot of people have not... We can be we can be a little more um, uh, specific next next week. You're right because right. because the, 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 there is a structure to this which which is which involves lots of information be and you know being unfolded over time so that you're learning. It's like peeling an onion. You're learning more and more about each of these characters, and you're you're he's give both the book and the movie. They're giving you a lot to guess with you know is he bad is she bad who's 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 doing what to whom and and you find out obviously so the ending is more controversial um on both i think Um, one way to kind of get around the spoilers and still talk about the the more intriguing elements of the movie or, or the performances actually because this is actually the the first time in a while that i've really perked up and seen ben affleck do something that seems 
different to some degree. I mean, I think he's really enjoyable in the sense that he actually makes himself sort of contemptible in parts in ways that, you know, when you're a big charismatic actor as he is, it's it's hard to kind of break out of that mold. I mean, you see that the way he cast himself in Argo, for example, I mean, he's going to be Batman next. And I think he's breaking down some of those expectations pretty well in this performance. Obviously, I agree. You know, Rosamund Pike is on another level. And I think that, you know, it, this is a great movie to discover her with because it, it allows her a certain kind of versatility that her other roles haven't given her. But what's interesting about that uh, sort of chemistry that they have on screen is the way Fincher frames it. This this is a movie that I, I don't think it's the best movie of the year, but I think it's, it's pretty- I think it's exciting to see a studio movie that has uh, so much ambiguity to the way that people communicate. Um, and so that's why it is Hitchcockian because yeah. because he's actually ca- he he said at the press conference that he casts Rosamund Pike because who is established in England and has been in, in an education and in a Bond film and and uh, you know the um, Pride and Prejudice she played the sister to, to Karen Knightley and so forth. But but she's really really an enigma in the movie and that's that was very smart casting because we bring no real preconceptions with us as to as to who she is and that that enables us to to follow along with this with this character not knowing what she's capable of so what else have we seen at the New York Film Festival? I mean, this is a movie that's big uh, marketing behind it. It's coming out in theaters. People could see it soon enough. There's a lot of other stuff out there that doesn't have that same level of exposure. Well, there's some foreign Oscar contenders. So I caught up with two of them. Um, I caught up with Saint Laurent, which I found to be a very strange choice uh, yes. for France uh, for, for, for this submission. Partly, I think I think it's a visually sumptuous movie, as you would expect. Um, obviously, we're talking about the fashion designer Yves Saint Laurent, and um, it was weird to see it the night after I saw Mia Hansen loves Eden because, in a way, they follow a similar and all too familiar trajectory of people who are uh, enjoying the party life to the fullest and falling uh, subject to, uh, you know, using drugs and alcohol too much and so on. And, you know, you, you just know where it's going to go. And, and we've seen this kind of partying to excess and all of that. And, and it, it, it gets um, in these biopics, this, this arc just gets really tiresome after a while. What did, what did well, you think? I would agree with you that the movie does get tiresome. I don't think that it's quite the sort of traditional formulaic biopic that your charactering is it as that would be Yves Saint Laurent, which was the biopic that opened later earlier this year, which was the one that was sort I of I saw that, which was terrible. Was that was the Weinstein good. post. Right. This, this one is, is Sony Pictures Classics, and it's better. It's it better. better. Look, it's Bertrand Bonello. His last movie is House of Pleasures. He's a really interesting filmmaker. It's it's a very visually driven mo- movie, and more than that, there's a nonlinear structure to it that I found quite fascinating. It, it's too long, and it asks too much for the kind of brooding, melodramatic movie that it is, but I think the central performance is quite strong, and there are movie, m- moments that I found quite moving about this very troubled personality in a very flashy industry that actually alienated I was alienated never him. moved, never moved, but I, I mean, there was obviously this, the last sequence where he does you know, this ultimate uh, fashion walk show, just stunning, it was gorgeous. Gorgeous, oh come on! The dog didn't move you. There's the a dog great dog. Not, that oh, was, that the was dog. Me. He went nuts with the dog. But I just what you say about this this formal interest. I, I I recognize film critics love to to find ways to 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 write about movies that are, that are changing things. And if, if I see Birdman, I love Birdman. I think Birdman does change the form in a way that I've never seen before. And I I praise it to the skies. I will. I am 
able to be wowed by style. But with Eden, again, I mean, very good filmmaking, incredible, um, you know, movement with the camera, running around in this, you know, very believable, verite kind of way. But at the same time, there was no dialogue. <laughs> there was no subtext. There was no driving plot or anything that I could hang on to. And I, I find that uh, troubling in a lot of these films. Well, you know, look, it, it's not my favorite movie of the year, and I'm not going to the mat to it, but I do think that it's one that, that will continue to be discussed and processed, particularly by the fashion industry, because it's such an unorthodox movie about that particular world. Um, in terms of other movies that are in the festival that are foreign language submissions, I mean, there's a lot of other really interesting ones that are probably worth talking about in more detail. Timbuktu, which we've discussed in I the past. I loved it. Beautiful loved film. It. Seems to have gone over very Baby well. Cry. I think that's a strong contest tender actually for for the uh, shortlist and which for, is very interesting you know, it's, it's um you know it's a country that hasn't submitted before it's a topic and, you know, <laughs> fascinating so you know it's, it's one to get behind for for certain reasons that are even sort of outside the context of whether or not it works although it does um so th- there's there's some other stuff out there worth talking about i finally saw force majeure which uh, is not in the new york film festival but is the uh, swedish oscar submission fantastic and, uh, film i thought it was quite strong as well and that's uh, another one that you know it's it's got certain like interesting for- formal elements to it but i think it's the performances that really carry it and it has to do with sort of the boundaries of the relationship again sort of the you know into gone girl territory so that might be sort of hitting a certain uh the element it is there. marital it is a marital drama but that one is incredibly well written and so you just know that that filmmaker distilled everything down to to its essence and thought about every frame you know that movie is very controlled venturing beyond uh new york film festival titles we should probably dig into the oscar conversation a little deeper it hasn't been a huge week but there have been a couple of developments that um are worth uh, further scrutiny. I think, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me is that we keep coming back to Boyhood, the sort of little movie that could, as it were. Not, not it is a movie standing that, tall. It yeah. is holding its own. It is still the front runner in all of the polls, you know, the various Oscar polls. You know, people like to guess what they think Interstellar is going to be or, or, or Unbroken or something like that. But based on the films that have actually been seen, Boyhood is, in fact, uh, way ahead of the rest of the pack. And yet, not everybody who's in the race is necessarily um, part of the conversation anymore. Uh, last night, there was sort of a breaking news item about the uh, producer credits on the film. The PGA has determined that neither Jonathan Searing, the head of IFC Films, who agreed to finance the film, or John Sloss, who's a sales agent and also uh, was considered a produ- had an executive producer credit on the film, uh, are not considered producers, so they are not actually eligible for uh, awards consideration. Does this really surprise you, Eric? I mean, Mike, they didn't actually... What happens with the PGA is that they use various criteria to figure out exactly what each person did. And this recalls the situation with the movie Crash back in the day, where the, where, or, or the movie Little Miss Sunshine, people were upset. In that case, I think um, Yerksa and, and uh, Berger were robbed, and they actually produced the movie. But there, there are situations where the financier or the distributor is not given the producer credit, and um, that is normal. That happens all the time. So maybe it was there was some spin going on in terms of you know how this story got out there, but I think that it's an interesting one because Sauce and Searing were were actually 
doing a lot of uh, interviews when this movie came out, and they are, I think, you know, sort of these, you know, let, I wouldn't say monolithic, but sort of significant figures in the American indie world. And this is a big American indie. And so, you know, the opportunity to see it in the Oscar race makes us sort of scrutinize, you know, how it relates to that world. And I think, you know, to some degree, if these guys, or at least Searing especially, uh, are responsible for making this Unbelievable. He financed it. He financed it. He, he paid it. for it. He's it's like a studio. I mean, you don't you don't give the studio credit for. But he's not like a, a studio movie. because it's a much more unorthodox situation. I mean, who else would have produced this movie over the course? of I a give dozen him years? all due credit for having taken this enormous chance, and I I applaud him, and I think that it paid off, and he's distributing the film, and it's. But usually the distri- now Harvey Weinstein occasionally gets that cr- uh, a credit because he sometimes really is very closely involved in the day-to-day producing of, of a movie but but it is not normal for the producer uh, for the studio for the distributor for the producer uh, you know the production company to be the, the the producer and it's not normal for and by the way John Sloss is considered by many to be a, a very high upstanding attorney uh, in, in in well placed in New York but they don't consider him to be a line producer or someone who's on the set every day or someone who's developing screenplays these are the kinds of decisions that are being made. I'll, I'll give you that this is not surprising nor necessarily a big deal. But They're me, upset. <laughs> They're upset. Trust me. Both of them are really pissed off. And they wanted to be... What is it about, Eric? It's about wanting to be on the stage on Oscar night accepting the Oscar. That is what it's about, and that's why they're upset. Well, but they want here's, to have credit for what they did, and they want to be able to own it. And but, I understand those emotions. But the and and I understand them too. But I mean, I, the reason why I think it's actually interesting is because I always think of the work that I do as sort of paying closer attention to what's going on with a more marginalized side of the film world, whether it's, you know, films that are not well released in the U.S. or films that are released in, in unorthodox ways and sort of trying to figure out, you know, how, how can the rest of the world pay attention when something really good happens over here? So, you know, I was excited when Steve McQueen, who's a filmmaker I've admired for years, you know, got the exposure that I felt like he deserved. And, you know, just see, seeing the conversation around boyhood actually ending up being a conversation about American independent filmmaking in general, I think it's interesting that these two kind of stalwarts of the, of the industry are now, you know, in this frustrated situation of being less, you know, central to the conversation that's going on about this movie than, you know, they could be if they were actually up for the prize, you know? So I guess that's where I'm coming from. It's, it's another one of those situations where I, I wish the uh, Oscar race actually opened up a little bit more to the world that we live in throughout they, the year. The PGA is designed to um, protect against people encroaching on what they consider to be, um, you know, a lot of people try to get credit for movies. It's, it's, it's success knows many, many fathers, and, and this happens. And the, the, the reason that they're, they're being tough about it is they want the real producers who actually produce to be the ones who uh, get credit for producing. So let's turn to some of the documentaries that are potentially in the race. A number of them have been at the New York Film Festival over the past week, and so we have an opportunity to revisit them. Some of the ones that have screened here that are actually really great are not 
eligible. That includes Joshua Oppenheimer's excellent The Look of Silence, which uh, Draft House is releasing next year, and uh, Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi's The 50-Year Argument, which we discussed last week, this great history of the New York Review of Books, which is actually on HBO now. So people should watch it. Check but it out. Not, Check yeah, it out. But movie. that's not eligible. But the ones that um, I finally caught up this morning, actually, uh, with a movie that was in Cannes um, and, uh, and, and Telluride in Toronto, and that's Red Army, which is a very entertaining uh, movie that is a lot more, uh, it's a lot, it's about a lot more than sports. It's about um, uh, very much focused on this uh, one hockey star from, from Russia and, and uh, who comes to the NHL. But it's really about the whole long, um, uh, incredible Cold War, the way that the sports of, of each of these, of the U.S. And, and, and the Soviet Union were used as sort of chess moves, you know, in an overall political game. And, and this guy was right at the center of it. And he's a charming, charismatic guy. I met him in Cannes and I'm, I was totally wowed. And anyone who sees the film will be too. So that one is a contender, I would you know, say. It's, and I, Sony's I, behind it with course, Tom Bernard, who's a big, big hockey, hockey fan. Guy. So, you know, look, I, I saw it this morning. I thought it was enjoyable. It's a movie that's maybe a little overhyped because it was at Cannes. It's a strong debut for the director, Gabe Polsky, and uh, the topic is very interesting. I kept thinking some studio is going to option the rights to turn this into, you know, That would really be a fun. good movie. It would yeah. be an excellent movie. If you could get, if you could get um, an English-speaking, incredible uh, Soviet... Well, I guess you could get a... So, I guess you could get a European actor to do a credible Soviet actor. Center. So that's the problem. You start getting into all this stuff that starts faking something that is better real. Right. Well, you know, look, it's, it's a movie that I think is going to, you know, play well for certain people. Is it an Oscar kind of a documentary? I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's very short and kind of basic in terms of its focus. And one thing that I, I was sort of surprised by is that, you know, maybe this is because it's a certain kind of movie for a certain kind of sensibility, you know, it leaves you with, with a certain, in a weird sort of state because it doesn't really dig into the state of uh, Russian society right now, which, you know, I agree with that. Headlines That's in, a good so. ca- criticism. I, I, having been to Russia, um, and that was what I, I ended up um, talking to, to uh, Slava uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Cannes, and, and I asked him all of those questions, and I was really surprised when I saw the movie, you know, that it didn't get into any of them, but guess what? I'll have a better interview as a result. Right. Well, so there's Red Army. We've got that one out of the way. Another one we've talked about in the past is Seymour, an introduction, this really uh, soulful, philosophical documentary directed by Ethan Hawke about a retired pianist and sort of his philosophy about life. Now, it's such a small film that I'm sort of surprised that it seems to be in the conversation in such a big way, but now I'm starting to The emotion is undeniable. There's this moment in the movie at the end of the film where the whole audience bursts into tears, basically. And it's it's like Ethan Hawke knew he'd exactly what he was doing he twisted it's the, it's his portrait of this man and he twists and twists and twists and twists and you get to the point where everything un, un, unspools at the end when he actually performs you know the at the piano and wow and they I, I, applauded again when at the press conference the uh seymour bernstein who is who is this lovely wise incredibly nurturing it's a movie that actually is com- comparable and i wonder what the what the end result will be it, it is it is in the same territory subject wise as keep on keeping on because it's about mentorship 
It's about teaching. It's about performance. It's about learning how to perform in front of people, take the anxiety and, and play and, and be true to your art. And Ethan himself is on a quest uh, to sort of learn more about how to be a good artist. And, he, and so far, so good, I would say. He did a good job. But uh, Keep On Keeping On is in the same territory. Which one would you pick if you were a, um, an Oscar picker? You know, I mean, I think Seymour is great. And so if that one goes to the podium... I would be completely happy about it. You know, in terms of other movies in contention, it's, it's really hard to say. It's sort of a weird year. I mean, there, there's some stuff from Sundance, like E-Team in the conversation. Uh, That's a good movie. Know, Very good movie. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard pretty good stuff. But, you know, in terms of stuff, you know, films that are really sort of shaking up expectations, it's hard to say. I mean, I think we... Last Days be, at Vietnam is good. That's another Roy one. Kennedy's right. Film. Sort of, sort of, you know, again, kind of a traditional movie to have in this conversation right now. I think a week from now we'll have something else to talk about because then Laura Poitras Laura, is yeah. her Citizen Four. Citizen yeah. Four, this documentary about uh, Edward Snowden, which we keep speculating about, will have screened, and she's a great filmmaker. So, you know, I'd be surprised if there wasn't some kind of awards conversation surrounding that movie. But, and the documentary know. community admires her. Exactly. The she IDA could, gave her an right. award, you know, last year. And so she's, she's someone who's sort of revered for her extraordinary bravery, independence, and, and fortitude. Let's uh, shift from Oscar stuff and New York Film Festival stuff for a bit to talk about our picks for the week. There are other movies opening aside from Gone Girl, um, although ironically the movie that's opening this week that I would single out is actually also a New York Film Festival premiere because uh, the festival can also be a platform for uh, movies that are opening and, and you know they tend to be good ones because they're selected by this committee but in this case I think it made sense for them to go to New York first because it needed the extra boost of attention and that's The Blue Room. It's a film directed by the French actor Matthew Amarik. Um, it's a sort of Chabral-esque uh, sort of erotic thriller that was at Cannes earlier this year. Uh, it's very short actually it's under 80 minutes and which is interesting for the kind of movie that it is which is a very tense icy thriller but uh, I think that you know what really worked for me about this movie is that it's shot in the 133 ratio with these beautiful warm colors that are sort of at odds with this story of a man who's unfaithful to his wife played by uh, Amarik's uh, girlfriend and co-writer Stephanie Cleu and um they're both really strong in the film. Uh, it's, uh, it's just remarkable the way that it progresses through a series of incidences with this paranoid, claustrophobic quality, but also with a certain uh, economy in terms of the way it approaches its narrative. It's, it's funny because, again, we're coming back to this issue of uh, infidelity and, and, you know, the kind of bonds of marriage being tested. So, you know, it's, it's that Gone Girl factor. And so I think... You know, it's not a movie on the same scale as Gone Girl, but if you were to, you know, make a, a choice between those two films this week, I'd say, look, Gone Girl is going to be there. Here's a movie that's a little bit more off your radar that challenges certain things, but it's still very much a, a thrilling, satisfying movie. And look, it's so short, you could even make it a double bill. So that's my pick. I'm going to go with a movie that opened last week, um, Tracks, um, but it's going wide into 10 cities um, today. Friday. So, um, and also there's an interesting backstory there, which is that it was picked up uh, by the Weinstein Co. Um, 
last fall uh, out of the festivals a year ago. And it's a, it's a movie that took a really long time to get made. Uh, you know, the, the story of Robin Davidson uh, going on her trek across Australia, 1,700 miles over months, uh, nine months, uh, with camels, um, was uh, a famous story at the time. And a lot of people wanted to make it. Julia Roberts and Joe Roth wanted to make it. Uh, Sidney Lumet, Helen Hunt. You know, it sort of kicked along. And probably the very things that make it sort of difficult as an independent art film, you know, made it difficult as a studio film, which is that you end up alone in the desert, you know, with this woman who isn't talking, but it isn't really like that at all. You know, there's the Rick Smolin photographer character and her story was put on uh, National Geographic, a uh, 32 page spread over, um, you know, and it, was, it was syndicated all over the world. It was very well known at the time. Uh, and, and, and there's Adam Driver is playing the, the guy who's in love with her who comes to shoot her and, and everything. And then there's various people she runs into along the way. But the movie is so beautiful. John Curran did a great job and I highly, highly recommend it. And for some reason, I thought Mia Wasikowska was a shoo-in for Best Actress. They're just not um, putting that much time and energy um, into it yet. I'm hoping they're still going to do an actual Oscar campaign for her because it's a weak field and she deserves to be in there. But um, it would help if audiences went to see it. It's very well reviewed. That's not the issue. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Weinsteins since you bring them up. Uh, they've been in the news for something else as well. You want to get into that? Yeah. So, so basically, I'm. Pers- I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm not entirely sure what's going on. I did talk to Harvey Weinstein over the summer about Snowpiercer and the sort of unusual distribution pattern that they adopted for that, where they went into th- you know certain theaters that they could get for two weeks because they went straight to VOD um, and used uh, the the subsidiary partner uh, of of Weinstein Co., uh, which is called uh, Radius. Um, and Tom Quinn, Tom Quinn and his partner at Radius, they are uh, having a, I can see that Harvey is very serious about experimenting, figuring out new ways to bring movies to audiences because the old model is not working. It's very expensive. Um, as my um, writer Tom Brueggemann has, has said time and again, it's just becoming prohibitive to uh, get these movies out to, to theaters on a big scale. You really have to score. You have to have a big gross to, to even get your money back. And the Weinsteins have not been getting their money back on a lot of movies this year. It maybe even Begin Again, which was relatively successful for them. Uh, in just in terms of its sheer gross, but in terms of what they paid for it and how much they had to promote it, it may not have come out ahead. So what they're doing now is they've made a deal with Netflix to do... Um, a, a, a very innovative uh, deal on um, Crouching Tiger 2, which was one of the most successful uh, Asian films if, ever released uh, around the world as, as, and, and, you know, best picture contender and so forth. And uh, it won a few Oscars even. But, but the thing is, um, they may not have been entirely confident as they weren't with Snowpiercer that they could get their money back. So they're going, they were trying to go with um, a, 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 a Netflix release in conjunction with IMAX theaters. But the exhibitors put the kibosh on that, and the four big chains refused 
uh, to to play the the movie. So there's there's a real tension there. And then um, Netflix went ahead and made another deal with Adam Sandler, yet another star on the ropes, whose movies have not been doing well. Um, and he's going to independently with his company produce about four films for them right. that they can run whenever they want. And so and, you uh, know, this news to me is not nearly as exciting as say when Netflix went into original series because you know basically the message that we're getting is you know they can deal with people whose careers are not doing so great. So Fincher, you know. David Fincher's career was doing just okay, fine but that's original, when he that's took an, on House of But cards. that's an original series and he was still making movies. I mean, with Sandler... And Sandler's still going to make movies too. What's, here's why this is such a big deal. It's such a big deal because they're skipping theaters. They're going straight to their subscribers with original movie content and the theaters are being left high and dry. Now, does anyone care? And also, Adam Sandler, he's one of their best performing uh, movie stars right. on Netflix. So that's and actually what's interesting about it, is that they can use this metadata to create... They content. used it in order to do House of Cards. Uh, you know, the, the original House of Cards and Kevin Spacey were huge on Netflix, so they said, let's put those two things together. We, we, we want this. But, but, but the, idea, the idea is that they're skipping the theaters, and they're skipping, in a, and this is where it gets interesting for f- people like you, is, is they're skipping reviewers. I mean, Adam Sandler doesn't need reviews. He's not expecting to get good reviews. So, so some of the things that are established as, as verities in our world, you need to open in theaters, you need to get reviews, you need these things. The perception could change. This perception could change that it's okay to open a movie on Netflix instead. Right. Well, so I would love to see a real artist take advantage of that metadata. But again, you know, Netflix is so secretive about information, it's hard to fully understand exactly where they're coming from and all this stuff. So, you know, maybe a year from now we'll have a better sort of insight into the way this process is working. But Well, Tom Brueggemann dug into this in some detail, and his guess is that they're going to, and I agree with him, they're going to make a lot of uh, announcements. This is just the beginning. Well, this is also just the beginning of the New York Film Festival. We've got another week to go. So before we get too deep into other matters, we'll uh, reconvene next week to uh, When we can talk about Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice. It is in four, all kinds of stuff. So I'm excited, Anne, and I hope that you are too. Tomorrow, I will check out PTA, but you'll have to wait until next Friday to hear what we think. Or check our Twitter feeds, you know. Exactly. Exactly.